Hello everyone, welcome back to this uh, episode of Sub School From Home. It's a very, um, auspicious is not the word, what's auspicious but, um, uh, you know, uh, ominous. Ominous is the word I want. It's an ominous episode, it is the 13th episode of our 13th season. Ah, beware. Ill-fated. Ill-fated is the word I want, yeah. Uh, hopefully it will turn out not to be so. Uh, my name's Cameron. And I'm Luke. And I'm Lachlan. And uh, Ken can't be with us. Uh, I've got a, uh, a, a wait. I've got a story to start off with that is from Adrian Plass in good, you know, tradition with this podcast. In one of the sacred diaries, I think it's the first one. There's an episode in which Adrian Plass describes George Farmer, who is a very enthusiastic, extroverted, joyful, bubbly sort of person, doing worship leading. And Adrian Plass says, "Oh, I always find it hard when George is doing the worship leading." And George stands up the front and says, good morning. And the congregation says, good morning. And George says, I said, good morning. And the congregation says, good morning. And George says, I still can't hear you. Good morning. And by this stage, the, the congregation is fully panicked into a, uh, into a belief that lack of volume is a sin. And so they... Uh, respond in a not quite joyful but certainly louder voice good morning how are we all today uh praise the lord praise the lord and then george farmer says and where do we all want to go one day and the whole audience except for one person says heaven and leonard thin who takes the question at face value says tenerife <laughs> in, a, in a loud voice and Adrian Plass says that I was so grateful I leant over and gave him my last chewing gum because he, he copes in church when things get a bit stressful by chewing gum and he passes on his last chewing gum to um, to Leonard Thin. And um, here is the question. Uh, does Revelation make you feel more or less like heaven is a place you want to be? <laughs> Above or below Tenerife in that bucket list. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, look, we began this season um, sharing that the, some level of sharing that some level of emotional energy was required to step up to tackling the three angels' messages and the um, the rivers of blood that pour from the wine press of God's wrath and the marks of beasts and so on. I I think. I hope that the listeners agree. I've certainly found considerable value in some of the things that we've discussed and some of the conversations we've had, but I haven't felt um, I, I haven't felt super energized and uplifted by it. I guess what I'm saying is I found value, I've enjoyed it, but I do feel a little exhausted coming to the thirteenth discussion uh, on these topics. Um, and so I think my answer would be on the basis of the bits of revelation we've focused on. Um, it probably hasn't made me more excited. It's it's been a focus that's felt a little bit like hard work. I I think f f for me the hard work is in the the orthodoxical Adventist way of reading Revelation, which I more and more find to be to be blunt, self satisfied, self righteous, self obsessed nonsense. Hmm. And it, it, I, I, I really want to appreciate the book of Revelation and understand it better. 
And I don't think the Adventist church's teachings on it achieve that for me. There's, there's a sense in which we may have fallen into the same trap as Naaman, who is very disappointed to discover that God's will is fairly mundane. Hmm. You know, he wants something spectacular. He wants, what, the prophet sent out his servant? Can't he come and see me himself? And why, oh, the Jordan River's a dirty river. And um, and his servant said, well, if you wouldn't, if you would be happy doing some great thing, why are you not satisfied with some simple thing? Mm. So when when you look at the when you look at the fairly nuanced, it's got many ingredients. It's a complicated recipe. If it was a recipe, this would be a complicated recipe for construing end time events and how we ought then act. It's it's um, it's an interesting point, Cam. There's there's actually quite a few stories in the Bible which have similar themes. Like you said, Naaman, and I immediately thought of Jonah. It's like, oh, he, yeah. you know, he's upset because God wants to save Nineveh. He yeah. wants dramatically destroyed yeah. um, in, in heavenly fire. Um, and I, I heard a really interesting insight um, from one of my ADRA colleagues recently um, at one of our workshops talking about, um, you know, the sheep and the ghost verse, sheep and the ghost verse, which we have looked at um, in, in this particular quarter, and making the observation that all of these things which Jesus says the sheep do are not particularly difficult or heroic things. They're not great acts of, of self-sacrifice necessarily, um, or they're not trials and tribulations. They're not, um, you know, Adventists, I think, reading Revelation like to focus on the mark of the beast and the persecution of the remnant and yada, 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 yada says look at who jesus says is going to heaven it's not the people who were who were i mean it's it's not the people who were part of a particular doctrinal club mm -hmm. yeah people who did these very simple but very very morally important acts of kindness yeah so <clears throat> if the adventist church would be happy with a difficult involved heroic was the word you used which i like you know, end time scenario. Um, ought we not then be happy with you know? I know Luke, well, one of your favourite verses, the Micah six eight. Mm. You know, love justice. No, act justly. Love mercy. Love mercy and walk humbly, and walk humbly with your God. When when you compare the sort of elaborate construct that's needed to tease out our end time narrative and the Sunday law, which is referred to in this week's lesson, and which is uh, things which are not stated explicitly in Revelation, but are found by connecting the dots with this and that. When you compare that with the Micah 6-8 sentiment or with um, Christ's Sermon on the Mount, uh, it seems strange to me that, that we are not satisfied unless we have a heroic part to play yeah well i, I at the end times you know that that's a really interesting thought and i can absolutely imagine some sort of joke along the lines of the ones about the adventists thinking they're the only ones in heaven um where the second coming occurs and the adventists and it's all great and it's fantastic but the adventists are very displeased and say to Jesus, where was the mark of the beast where were the for angels, where was the plague? Where was the lake of fire? Why didn't all of that stuff happen? Why didn't we, we were supposed to get persecuted? What happened to that? I wanted to be persecuted. <laughs> and Jesus will say to them exactly what Elijah, Elisha said to Naaman, which is like, if you were willing to do something so difficult, why aren't you satisfied with something easier than you thought? Yeah. 
it is uh, perhaps speaking a little tongue in cheek, and I may have shared this sentiment before on this podcast. I can't remember, uh, but you know, um, the the truth is that uh, being told connecting the dots in this way is so important. And I mean, if you look at a imagine if you had a dot to dot picture presented we, we we do some dot to dots in our family we haven't done one for a while but we found a book of dot to dots that have a thousand dots it's a very long task to find the dots it's a and it's, it's like a jigsaw puzzle it sits out for a bit and people who wander past will go and do the next few lines on it and the finished picture is quite elaborate they're, they're quite fun but imagine if that was presented to you with half the numbers missing or at least half the numbers open to dispute um slightly illegible or you know, written in some way the where you required some degree of interpretation. Um, being told that all these dots must be connected and they must be connected in this way and that this message is the pivotal message that, that will, that will uh, be of utmost significance at the dramatic finale to planet Earth uh, does make me feel just a little bit terrified if the universe, if the universe we live in is a universe that requires... That requires that that mm-hmm. like the penultimate challenge is like an escape room um you know or a nightmarish crossword puzzle um the thought occurs to me that i am looking forward to getting to heaven uh at this stage mostly because when i'm there i won't have to study revelation <laughs> well that made that, that that brought to my mind an, another question Dan, which i don't actually think is a very good question because i think it misses the point and I, I dislike any trains of thought which run along the lines of how do I make sure I get to heaven? Because to my mind, it's impossible to have that motivation and be remotely on the right track, if you see what I mean. You can only get to heaven by not caring about whether or not it's heaven. Um, but the question would be, does one need to have a good understanding of revelation to be saved? Is it essential? If, 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 if somebody never opens a page of Revelation, doesn't discuss it, doesn't talk about it, doesn't think about it, can they be saved? Because if, if, the, if the answer to that is yes, and it's not to say that studying Revelation is of no value, mm. but we must keep it in context. Right. I mean, at risk of trivializing it, Luke, we, we commented in our last episode, Cam and I, about the thief on the cross that Jesus declares salvation for effectively i'm paraphrasing jesus's words but that's the that seems to be the fairly fairly clear meaning that that is before revelation is written um so it it seems biblically possible to defend the idea that that salvation is a meaningful concept even in the absence of of the book of revelation that's that's what i'm wondering there's there's also we've talked about this in the interest of tying themes together from the quarter there does seem to be some danger with with trying to determine, almost on God's behalf, um, who will be in and who will be out, as if is it a, is it important to know in advance who's in and who's out? No, it's absolutely no business of ours. It's I mean there are things that we've been told are definitely our business: looking after the poor and the destitute, and living an honest life, and uh, learning to love people and to be selfless, which is a journey that is ongoing. And you know, so there's and if those. Th- those things seem to be enough to keep a person busy. I'd, I'd contend. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I've got a very clear belief on this one. The Bible says, "Judge not, lest you be." Hmm. Right? How can you judge someone more than by looking at them and going, "I think they're not going to heaven." Yeah. <laughs> 
We just yeah. shouldn't even be cons- we shouldn't be pondering. We shouldn't be even really talking about it. In uh, um, the Bible's also that's this is the other one of my pet peeves. The Bible's also really clear on gossip. Yes, and how it is not to be done. Yeah, slander. Very bad. And so to and 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 Adventists do a fair bit. So to me, we talk we talk about other denominations behind their oh, back. We absolutely do. To me, yeah. combining gossip with judgment is that's a double sin. To be so, sure. I'd like to pick this up because this what, there's there's an element here of of a need for self reflection. I I have to admit that I'm at this point in you know just picking up Cam. You you pointed out that the lesson this week has um, just a fairly simple and straightforward statements about Sabbath keeping, Sunday keeping, Sunday laws, and and sort of in the context of things we are certain about. There's so much we don't know, but there are the broad strokes we do know. And these things are just taken to be so 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 certain. Now, I'll admit, I'm going to refer us back to Revelation 14. This is where we started 13 weeks ago. And this is the, the passages that relate to the, the three angels' messages that we've nominally been exploring. Um, and in verse 7, fear God, give glory to him, um, worship him. So there's an instruction to worship God. And one of the problems... Um, with the with the beast, um, verse nine. Anyone who worships the beast and his statue, or he accepts his mark, must drink the wine of God's anger. The theme of worship does seem to be fairly vivid here. The, but worship meaning um, sort of allegiance, alliances. It's who who you are um, considering to be an overlord. Who you are considering to be a a guide that can be followed. Um, who you are paying deference to and and um, you know acknowledging as as a dominant power that seems to be front and center if i can have a go at joining the dots just bear with me for a moment what the conventional adventist drawing looks like once they've joined the dots here is okay it's about worship worship relates to the day of worship and hang on a minute there was um keep the commandments of god and sabbath keeping is one of the ten commandments so here's a bunch of dots being connected. And so then then it it's moderately natural. It's at least understandable to see why Adventist pioneers and Adventist um, thinkers historically have, have arrived at this kind of sketch, which is the seventh dayness of the Sabbath is at um, under under attack by Christians that have that have denounced it. Worshiping God is important. So um, the Sabbath is a really important part of worshiping God. So Sabbath keeping is one of these things that becomes a sign. Now, the, just just another, for a moment, oh, you yeah, jump in, Luke. Yeah. But what I'm wanting to do is I want to launch to a really interesting observation on the basis of that sketch. Um, go for it. Oh, uh, well, yeah. So just before you launch, I just wanted to make the side comment triggered in my mind as you were saying that. It would be interesting to consider, and I think, you know, um, there's some great Adventist historians who maybe even have done work on this, but how much the Adventist theology that you just sketched out is rooted in the context in which Adventism was formed. Hmm. Adventism grew up, grew in a largely Christian world. Yeah. Effectively, exclusively Christian world. Yeah. Almost exclusively Christian world. I mean, there were lots of non-Christians in the world at that time, but very, very far away for a long time from the Adventist church, right? And the number one thing, the number one doctrine, perhaps, Mm. um, although you could argue that, you know, is the same. Anyway, um, 
But certainly one of the main distinctions that Adventism had was that it was Sabbath worshipping rather than Sunday worshipping. Mm. And so how much of that actually informed the development of their theology when they were in an environment where the most obvious, constantly the most obvious and most important thing that they were trying to get across to other people, mm. other Christians, was the importance of the so you're exactly right that that i mean you're putting your finger exactly on something that i i think is very very profound and important to consider which is that historical context essentially i'm very sympathetic and um willing to be to 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 consider all of these things and i'm I'm willing to be quite understanding of adventist pioneers arriving at this sort of, of pencil sketch here's here's the interesting thought though if you are convinced that the great deception at the end of Earth's history is how correctly you're keeping the Sabbath commandment. Wouldn't that mean, wouldn't that make you incredibly thoughtful and explorative and um, and conversant over what the Sabbath means? And, and wouldn't it make you quite alert and consistently vigilant to be on the lookout? Are there ways, are there things we may have missed about Sabbath that we want that, that we might need to learn? Uh, you know, we we don't want to risk getting this one wrong because it's so important. The reason I'm bringing this to the attention of the conversation here is that it seems to me, somewhat confoundingly, that for decades Adventism has actually not been particularly concerned. We, as an organisation. We've been totally confident that we're nailing this Sabbath thing because it's 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 something we discuss and we you know mm. should you swim or not well you know okay there'd be a bit of discussion but in general we're not actually all that motivated it seems to me to try and well get, do it better yeah do it better get get more of the Holy Spirit's guidance on this you know surely. I, I guess I'm trying to ide- I'm identifying what is a new thought for me here, which is just basically there's a there's a logical gap here. We're not actually acting the way we should act if this was what we fundamentally were convinced of. And I, I think because it, it's it's interesting. The, the other thought um, that follows on is not only do we are we not acting on it, we're also not reacting to changes in, our, in the environment of our church. So the big issue facing Adventism today is not convincing Sunday the Sabbath instead. Yeah, it's convincing people to keep anything. It's convincing people to take a day of rest. Yeah, it's it's convincing people to do any sort of worship that the yeah. very concept of worship still has value. Would it would it be plausible? Would it be plausible that an end time deception might be a law banning any days of rest? Can you see how weird that idea is? Because that doesn't fit at all in conventional Adventist eschatology, and yet it would be just as threatening. In fact, perhaps it could be more threatening to the Sabbath keeper's ethos. Well, I think that <clears throat> I think that for many Christians, their daily life experience is that they find they find opposition to worship. Now, listen, all have to excuse, there's a windstorm going outside and I'm just looking at the recording thing and the background noise at my end is quite large. So if it sounds like I'm recording from the eye of a tornado, then I'm not. Um, <coughs> now I'm derailed. Oh, uh, yeah, for a lot of Christians, it is their lived experience. That comes in the form of persecution. We, we, I know, Luke, this is a theme that you care a lot about, but we, we talk in sort of vague terms about a per- persecution that will come and it will come to us 
Um, well, there's Christians already being persecuted, and there has been forever. And there, well, there are, but you don't have to be you don't have to be skinned alive and and crucified upside down in a workplace. It is a secular workplace. It requires an exercise of will to say, no, actually, I'm not going to compromise on what I believe here and here and here. And if someone asks me, I'll actually tell them. And, um, you know, that sort of um, pressure. You said, Luke, that one of the distinguishing features of the early Adventist church was that it lived in a, a fairly exclusively Christian setting where the dis- what distinguished Adventists most from the population at large is the fact that they worshipped on Saturday. What is it today that distinguishes an Adventist population from their society at large, uh, Adventist congregation from the from the community in which they live? I think I think it's probably true that Adventist communities are not as countercultural as they would like to imagine they are. I, I was I was I've been I'm trying not to say um, tongue in cheek answers, but one of them's too good to to pass up. I was going to say, Cam, that what distinguishes the Adventist community most is that the average age is significantly higher than that of the general population. <laughs> Good. Okay, Luke. Yeah. Here's, here's, a, here's an issue. We run the risk in lots of areas of having our distinguished religious people in general run the risk of their largest point of difference in the mind of the general populace being a moral issue where the church is seen as deficient, perhaps legitimately so. So for an example, um, if it moves, shoot it. If it doesn't, chop it down. Is an attitude which statistically is more prevalent among fundamentalist and conservative religious groups than the general population. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so this idea of... In- it's interesting that, that the push to preserve the environment, which is a thing of great concern in the world we live in, is has no religious dimension at all in the minds of most people. Yeah, mm. and it, it could have, but it doesn't. So that that is a point of difference. That that is a, gender is another one. Um, mm. Now this is going to bring us back to Revelation. The we are all agreed, aren't we, that the papacy is is you know all that is embodied by the all the beasts. And, uh, why why is the papacy you know the embodiment of the ultimate deception? It's because. The church, the Roman Catholic Church, has the presumption to assume that a man could have, above all other men, the the primacy in in terms of access to God, mm. and and the first hand knowledge and the and the divine right to decree God's will to the church at large. Now, Adventists don't have a single man, but we do have a single gender. <laughs> So, look, I'd, I'd like to run this by Clancy. I think that uh, perhaps she shouldn't preach on it. Maybe I'll preach on it. But um, I'd be interested to know, you know, how much how interesting this parallel is. This idea of saying, oh, the Pope's awful because he's, you know, the church has endorsed him as, as God's spokesperson. Mm. Is, is that worse than a church saying only men are going to hold church office? Yeah. Only men are going to be ordained? Um isn't that very much the same sort of thing? To, to, to me, it comes back a bit to, and I feel this way every time I hear Adventists talk about Catholics in general, and I know you're, you're doing it um, to kind of make the same point that I'm about to make, but why are we wasting time judging them? We just clarified that we're not supposed to be judging them. Mm. I mean, I, I always think, 
surely a brilliant end time deception would be convincing the church that it's really important they go around criticizing other Christians. Yeah, yeah. Um, for it is... minor differences in doctrine. That would be a brilliant deception because the church would be wasting huge amounts of time and attention and effort on that instead of getting out there and helping people, mm. which is what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, I, I think that's a well-made point. Um, uh, I, I was I was going to say something as well. that Look, I'm very much with you. In I, I, I have no criticism for Adventist pioneers. Um, I, I just think that those of us now need to look at their beliefs and their understandings and their learnings as in two lights. One is that they were heterodoxical. Is heterodoxical the right word? They were not. They were, they were changing. They, they were innovating. They were religious innovators. They were doing something new. They were questioning and searching new beliefs. And that I just think that the appropriate way to honor them is not to calcify and crystallize those beliefs that they came up with as new things and hold them as these static, unchanging, permanent, perfect expressions of truth. You don't follow, you don't honor an, an innovator by refusing to innovate. It's like people who go around reverently quoting Monty Python sketches. And the very essence of Monty Python was was breaking every mold that they could find to, to yes, break. Yes, and, to, um, to, you know, and Monty Python then sort of became kind of a convention and a standard, which was the exact... They were punished. That, they were trying yeah. to, to, to do... Their punishment, their punishment for dis, uh, despising orthodoxy was to become the new orthodoxy. Well, um, maybe, yeah, I mean... Maybe that's as true for churches as it is for comedians. Um, yeah. In terms of revelation, I, I, my, my feeling is that um, the combined weight of scriptures outside revelation provide me enough food for thought that I, I don't uh, feel like I've run out of things God's trying to tell me elsewhere. Now, an answer to that might be, well, yes, all the books are inspired, but this one is particularly important um for many christians it has been and who, who am i to dispute their experience uh, i think that in the broad picture even without connecting any of the dots if you stand far enough away from it and you look at how the dots are spread out there's some broad themes that are really obvious um <clears throat> one of them is that there is a moral dimension to the universe mm. and the moral dimension is if anything more real than the stuff we can see and touch and taste and um you know and and that there's a moral dimension to the way we live our life which has a huge significance mm. um and that and that and that and that you might not guess what a successful look life looks like by studying the people who su achieve success what what an ultimately successful life look like? What's what's the real good life? You might not notice that by looking at the people who seem to succeed here and now. Cam, you you asked what sort of distinguished Adventists from the general population, and I wish I could say it was it was what you just described that we understand the moral importance of things, um, but I don't think that's true. I do think that that is maybe what should distinguish Christians. Um, just generally, it should be a defining characteristic. Uh, so not saying, you know, uh, nobody else has it. Um, 
but that we understand and value that actions, the morality of an action matters, not just the outcomes, not just the um, sort of motivations or the context or the um, challenges uh, or the, the anything like that, but but fundamentally whether or not it was right or wrong to do such. And I think that is something that the world desperately needs because if you don't have a moral element to decision-making, there's very little else that humans can base their decision-making on. You have self-interest. There was a guy, have I talked about the guy who's floated a company because he was tired of making decisions? Yes. Yeah, you did. You mentioned that on a podcast episode actually um, sometime Yeah. Back totally bizarre yeah he was tired of making decisions so he, he floated a company and the shareholders bought shares and then the company was his life so yeah <laughs> um and the shareholders just made his decisions for him let me let me read um let me read a passage from because you know before starting the recording i thought let's let's finish where revelation finishes and looking at revelation 21 and 22 and um you know there's some wonderful verses here and then I, as i read it i realized there's a verse I thought, I thought we might turn to some of the easy verses at the end of Revelation, but they turn out not to be easy. So Revelation 21, verse uh, starting from verse 1 and reading just the first eight verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. That does seem to be a theme, that, God, that, the, that the earth is in a state of flux and, um, and chaos and that God is at work trying to restore order, and that's his ultimate aim. So that's one of the big picture things that I think is fairly incontrovertible from, from the book. Uh, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulphur, which is the second death. Now, you were doing well for a while there, Cam. I was doing well. It's <clears throat> the reason why we have fire and brimstone, you know, in our history of, of you know, sermon making, uh, as as the Christian church generally, is because it's it's in there. What what does he does he mean? He, he cannot mean anyone who has ever told a lie. Because, mm. and last week, Locke, we said that, you know, any interpretation of Revelation has to be done in the light of a God who, while pinned to a cross and dying, could turn to someone else who was a convicted, a fairly convicted criminal, who, was, who had genuinely done it, and look at him in the eyes and say, today you'll enter my kingdom. Mm. Mm. Uh, what, what do you make of this in that context? Well, I think it's interesting... And you know, I don't, I don't know the language, but it refers to you know the list of immoral people again, right at the end of the chapter. And in one version of the Bible that I was looking at, it says those who love a lie, or those who love lies. 
probably. Um, but I don't know if that's an insight that uh, helps in any way. Yeah, I mean, it, it actually, what the, the detail that you've drawn our attention to, Cam, which is even at the end of Revelation, as we get these waves of the kind of everything's been finished, everything's been made new, we keep getting these little echoes back of the the destruction and the fire and the and the sort of um judgment and so on because it, it comes there where you read it it also comes up um uh, in verse 27 the last verse of, of chapter 21 um and even i found it thought i found it in chapter 22 and i can't put my finger on it now so um the the idea the idea is that it just can't it it, it is it is continuing to speak of the of the destination of the focus um in other words re- remember what we said last week you the only time you ever get to make a decision is right now so what it's doing is painting all of these pictures as calls to the action here right now it's it's not um it's not even you know there's uh, even in revelation these people are not being preached to anymore they're not there's no there's no call for them to make a choice you know, even in the language of Revelation, it's describing a time at which choice making is kind of ceased. Is over. Like in, in Revelation 22, it says, uh, in verse 11, let the evil doer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Right. That was yeah, Revelation so, 22. You know, yeah. Well, I think that could have been even the bit I was looking for two minutes ago. But it's it's sort of, I, I think... I think there's a really um, useful application of that idea. We all tend towards the point where we stop having decision-making autonomy. Um, in, in one raw sense, that just comes with age um, and, and just get less capable and less sort of able to be fully autonomous. But also in a sort of a moral and a character development sense, the more wholeheartedly we, we adopt a goal and pursue it, the more that 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 becomes a defining characteristic of who we are um and it ends up being something that the decision ends up being locked in is kind of what i'm saying and i i I sort of see that as being what revelation is ending with here it's kind of saying listen in the biggest picture god's god's the winner here and his goal is restoration um i guess what i'm hearing here is the is the observation that there are some cases that are unrestorable and that's a theme we've picked up we've actually discussed this um on episodes far in the distant past i suspect but i do recall it um the the yeah the idea that um even if even if we imagine god wanting to be a universalist the the autonomy he's given by being a creator god rather than a simulator god um Means that there there is the at least the possibility of a of a created entity um, locking it, that identity so tightly around distance from God that that there is no way for it to meaningly continue existing in a world where or in a not a world in a universe in an existence in a in a, a new earth where where God has made all things new. Um, yeah, it's you know as you describe that. Look, I think yes, that is that is an idea, and that is an idea that we've picked up all in previous podcast episodes, um, and we've, um, you know, when we talked about or oh, many seasons ago now, but we talked about Pharaoh hardening his heart. Um, the, oh, sorry, we were talking about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, but in point of fact, in the Exodus account, God does not harden Pharaoh's heart, 
until Thero has already hardened his own heart. Um, yeah, the way the story is told in Exodus suggests that Pharaoh makes a sequence of choices until he's at the point where he's so stuck in his ways that he, he can't really change. And, you know, that picture, um, as a literal description that there's going to be people who have been bad and died and then they're raised up just so that they can be killed again, seems a little at odds with, um, with the rest of the picture of God painted in the Bible. But the idea of saying, no... Um, here is here is some ultimate end time scenarios, mm. um, and this lake of eternal fire that, with people who can't be saved any longer, is a very real state that we may approach. Yeah, and to be but, very clear, but we can only make decisions in this moment. And yeah. so, in light of that, in light of that, really, the real point is: well, what are, what are we going to do each moment by moment? And and the the other corollary of of what you're saying is. The utility of these verses is not in our uh, giving us a whole lot of labels to go around and assign to other people. You are a sinner. You are a Sunday keeper. You are a beast follower. Um, but really, the utility of all these pictures is to uh, help us as we reflect on the choices we have to make. They're, they're internally useful. They're useful like a mirror. Well, well that, that comes back to the idea of the the Bible is a... Is, is a tool from God to help us make decisions. Mm. Practical book. Yeah. It's not a history textbook. It's not a science textbook. It's not a, it's not any sort of textbook. It's not a horoscope. It is it is a collection of stories and I mean stories in the best possible way. I love stories. Stories are amazing. Stories can be true. Mm. Stories can be factual, but they don't have to be either of those things to still have a lot of value. Mm. And it is a collection of stories that help guide us in the decisions we have to make in our lives. That is the utility of it. Um, that is the purpose of it. Um, and to try and use it for things other than that, I think is inevitably going to continue to run into problems. Yeah particularly if we are suggesting in our interpretation as we run out and apply labels to different things that that God doesn't want to save some people or that he I mean we have just said that God can't find a way of saving some people it seems seems odd that God can't find a way of people a way of saving people who worship him on Wednesdays hmm. but it just feels to me just a bit strange it doesn't pass the pub test um, not that I go to pubs but um, uh, doesn't pass you, it the public non-alcoholic the, beer test. Yeah, it doesn't exactly. You know, the the picture we've just described of of these small choices we make day by day, defining a moral character that's that's by our own small choices um, becomes a thing that we are. And um, you know, in the list that's here, there's the people who are violent and the people who are sexually immoral and the people who are this and the people who are that just seems odd to include in that list people who worship the god of the universe Mm. on thursday um you know instead of saturday it just yeah i think it feels odd i'm looking at the clock and i'm Mm. i've got an observation to make which is on this 13th episode of the 13th season of our podcast i think we're, we're particularly missing ken's spiritual gift of summary and synthesis Yes, um, I, exactly. I have a concluding thought, but it's not 
as good as anything that Kevin would come up with. Well, uh, I don't even have a concluding thought. So uh, I think, no, I I think we're going to have to... It's over to you, Luke. It's over to oh, you. No, oh, no, this has not gone the way I'd hoped. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a good way to finish the podcast. Well, I do I do have one concluding uh, a suggestion, but you give your thought and then I've got a suggestion. Yeah, we'll do the thought and then the suggestion is probably right. On it. I've just been reading an article um, about the trial of a four-day working week in Australia, which has found... And the trial is on the basis of, of the 180-100 model, which is that employees get 100% of their pay to work 80% of the time on, on the condition that they maintain a commitment to keep 100% productivity. So you, no drop in productivity from the decrease in time. The study has shown that the employee employers, so not the employees, the employers, who participated in this have given it an average rating of 9.25 out of 10. 70% of them have reported an increase in productivity in their company, and 30% have reported no decrease in productivity. So that suggests to me that the most likely thing in the future to happen is that the weekend is going to get longer, not shorter. (laughs) And we should maybe uh... consider what that means for, for what bits of our doctrine we emphasize. Now, look, maybe the Sunday law is coming, and if it does, we should face it, you know, as Seventh-day Adventists. But I think when we're thinking about what sort of decision-making we should be doing right now, it seems to me a wise decision to not waste a lot of time or effort thinking or worrying about something in the future which is yet to come to pass, and instead to focus on what we should be doing as Christians and Adventists now. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. There's a very good concluding thought. Yeah. The suggestion that I have is that in, in at the end of this um, season, at the end of this episode, I, I I propose um, closing with prayer and I've got a, a thought that is not well formed, but it's really just amusing on the, the title of this week's lesson, which was ablaze with God's glory. Um, So God, we, we, want to be attuned to your glory we see a world that's not always ablaze with your glory we read in revelation of a future that does blaze with your glory um we feel tension in our own lives that so frequently seem to lack this glory and we we pray for your um fire to blaze within us um can we can we align our desires and our choices and our passions with yours, um, simply so that we can be agents of bringing that blaze of your glory to the world that needs it. Um, and help us stay focused on this as, as an important and meaningful thing uh, and give us comfort for all of the areas which we have not been able to resolve to our satisfaction and may never. Amen. Amen.